Corinth, uh, this letter that Sharon, thank you so much, read to us from, was written by Paul to Christians who lived in the city of Corinth, to a church there. We've been going through this letter for about six weeks, and one of the things that you need to know as we look at this morning's passage is that Corinth was a very impressive city. It was one of the leading lights of the Roman Empire. It it was a cosmopolitan city. I mentioned to you last week that many people believe that at this point in time, Corinth had exceeded Athens as a cultural icon in the Roman world. Now, at this point in time, the rock stars of the Corinthian society were the intellectuals. The intellectuals could develop a following every bit like Lady Gaga can develop a following. And just like with Lady Gaga, they would identify themselves by beginning to look and act and talk. They would take on the persona of their kind of uh, intellectual hero. Now, to be an intellectual leader in this part of the world at this time, you did the same thing that musicians do today. You would go from city to city having concerts. You would go into Corinth and you would have, there would be a banquet and then you would come out and display your incredible vocal abilities. But for them, it wasn't in singing. It was in your ability to, one, demonstrate that you knew deep truths and, two, that you could explain them in really polished and lofty kind of ways. Now, this is a different culture than ours, but it's operating according to the same logic of musicians today. You go to a town, you have a concert, you develop groupies. So uh, an intellectual, a philosopher, a sophist is actually what it's called. Technically, this is what we call the second sophistic movement. It's sophistry, it's a type of philosophy, and it's blowing its way through the Roman world. And Corinth is in love with this part of the culture of the Roman Empire. Corinth loves intellect. It loves knowledge. It loves wisdom. The word knowledge is used in the letter by Paul to the Corinthians more than in any other book of the Bible. It's their cash cow. It's what makes sense to them. Now, When one of these traveling intellectuals would come into town and he would dazzle people with his knowledge and his rhetorical abilities, people would gather around him, sort of like groupies. They would be disciples. And you would stir up trouble with the disciples of the passé intellectual leader who came through last year, who's been far superseded by the current guy. And so you would not like each other. And, and it's, not, it's not like a group of teenagers arguing, is this rock band better than that rock band or this group? It's more like a group of adults arguing about a Democrat or a Republican. In other words, this wasn't um, a naive thing. It wasn't a shallow thing. It was real. It split families. It split neighbors. If you pick this guy, it would be like walking into the heart of the most liberal part of Washington and advocating George Bush. 
or into the most Republican area in the South in advocating Barack Obama. It would cause discussions to occur. Now, that's exactly what was going on. They had bumper stickers on their camels. I love this guy. Some were blue dot, some were red dot. I mean, that's the way they did. Now, the Christians in Corinth, they were Christians, but they were Corinthians first. They were born, they were bred, they were raised, they drank the Kool-Aid of the atmosphere that I just described. So when Paul writes them, if you have your Bible, look at chapter 1, verse 10. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, in the name of all that is holy. I mean, he's pulling out, please, please, in the name of Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind in the same judgment. Now, why is he saying this to them? Because they are Corinthians. And they're used to picking their favorite leader, identifying with him, and then determining who they like and don't like based on who follows what leader. So look at verse 11. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul. Or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. See, some of them liked Paul. He was the one who brought the gospel to the Corinthian community. It was not there. Paul brings it there. A group of people latch on to him, and everything's fine. All the Christians in the church, they like Paul, they love Paul, until another teacher shows up, and it triggers their instinctive behavior. Apollos comes through. And Apollos is from Alexandria, and if you know anything about um, Greek history, Alexandria is quite the cosmopolitan city. It's, and Apollos has been trained in rhetoric. And when he comes through, he can talk in ways that Paul could never talk. And so if you flip over actually to 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and look in verse 10. This is another letter Paul writes to Corinth. And it's really interesting what he, he gives a bit of biographical information 2 Corinthians 10.10, for they say, these are people, Christians in the church in Corinth, his, talking about Paul, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence and weak and his speeches of no account. See what they're saying? You like Paul, but you know what? We like Apollos. Now that cat could talk. And see, what it did was it triggered their instinctive response. You know, you grow up saying, I'm not going to yell at my children. I'm not going to yell at my children. And then you get children and you have an instinctive response that was ingrained in you. And you don't want it. You fight it, but it comes out. Or, right, I'm not going to be a workaholic or I'm not going to be material. I mean, you just pick these things. You say, my parents did it. I hated it. It ruined my life. I'm not going to do it. Then you get put in the same dynamics and you know what comes out of you? What's been ingrained in you. So they, they were okay until another person showed up who was a Christian preacher. And then what happened? Corinth came out of them. Well, then some of them said, oh, not Paul, not Apollos, Cephas, which is the Aramaic translation for Peter. Ooh, Peter, he's a good one. And then somebody always plays the Jesus card, right? (laughs) We follow Christ. Uh, We're better. But look, they've turned Jesus into just another traveling intellectual. They made him their homeboy. They made their own T-shirt. I identify with Jesus. They just put him in the pantheon of all the great speakers. Now, what does Paul do? How does he handle this? Because it's tearing the church apart. It's, it's chewing them up. 
Well, in, in chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, Paul argues that the very center of Christianity, the heart of Christianity, what he calls in verse 18, the word of the cross. This is Paul's suitcase. You know what a suitcase is, right? When, when, when you go visit somewhere, you put your clothes in a suitcase or a box or, a, I don't know, styrofoam or whatever you use, you, you squeeze it all together. Why? Because you need to get it somewhere. But when you get there, you unpack it. The word of the cross is a suitcase. He packs into that all of the gospel. It's his shorthand for the gospel. He says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. He's saying, hey, what being a Christian is all about, in the eyes of the larger Corinthian culture, it's not wise It doesn't measure up. It looks foolish. Look down. Look again at verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul is saying, why are you playing this old tired game? The very game itself judges you to be an idiot for being a Christian. It looks at the heart of what you believe and says you're a fool. Why are you playing with them? Why are you buying into that logic? It's, it's, it's contrary to the heart of what it means to be a Christian. Then in verse 26, Paul makes another point. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Now look, you say that to some people, they're like, yeah, oh well, no big deal. Right, But you say that to people who are in love with the elite status of being wise. Right, And th- this is, these are fighting words. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Those were the three big ways of finding fame in the Corinthian culture. Intellectual achievement, political power, and heredity. And Paul said, you, most of you had none of those. In a world of somebodies, you were nobodies. But God chose what is foolish in the world. Now look, Paul is really getting a dig in, right? God chose you. You were fools. Now look, they had idolatrized wisdom, right? And he says, he calls them fools. I mean, he's really going for them here. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wife. To shame all those people that had built up that value system. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So in verses 18 through 25, Paul said, the way you're acting is contrary to the very heart, the content of the gospel. But in verses 26 to 31, he says, look, the way you're acting isn't even true to who you are. You're making up this scale of value based on the world scale of value. But remember, on that scale, you're a nobody. So why are you importing that scale into the church? Why are you bringing that in here? You're not the sort of people that matter in a rock star obsessed culture. So why are you bringing the rock star mentality into this church? And God doesn't care about that stuff. God shames the world by looking at what the world values so much and saying, oh yeah, watch this. And he turns his back on it and picks the very people the world doesn't even notice. And in doing that, he's shaming the world and humbling the world. He's invited nobodies into his party. But now they are living in a way where if you're not on their team, they won't invite you into their party. 
Do you see how Paul is saying this is contradictory? This doesn't make sense to the content of the gospel or to who you are. And then in chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, Paul makes a third point. He reminds the Corinthians that when he came to them, he did not act like a traveling intellectual, like a sophist. He did not play the game. He deliberately pushed himself away from the game. His whole way of introducing them to Christianity, he didn't show up at the banquets and entertain the crowds with dazzling rhetoric. Look what he says in chapter 2 verse 1. I, when I came to you, I spent 18 months with you. I didn't act like one of those guys. I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Now... Paul really pushes against wisdom and lofty speech and all of that kind of stuff. He's saying, I knew the trap. I knew that if I got anywhere close to that kind of speaking, you would see me as another, another traveling intellectual. And you would hijack me with all of those assumptions. But I didn't act like that. That wasn't me. Look at verse 3. I was with you in weakness and in much fear. And much trembling. Now we don't know what the weakness is. It could have been that Paul had a stutter. Which would have been a tremendous weakness in that culture. It it could have been that... um, I was going to say he was bald, but that's not a weakness. Uh, What could it be? You know, it could have been... Some people think that he had a debilitating, humiliating illness. We we don't know what it was. the, the, The issue is... Corinth was a... Culture of power. And if you were weak, we run over you. And Paul said, whether it's physical, whether it's, whether it's his verbal abilities, whatever it was, he did not measure up. Much fear and trembling. Paul's style of speaking, it's unimpressive. As a person, he's not impressive. That's 2 Corinthians 2, verse, chapter 10, verse 10, right? He's unimpressive. This is the very opposite of the self-confident image that you would expect from a traveling intellectual teacher. Paul never played that that game. Look at verse 4. My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith may not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, the irony in all of this is that Paul's letter is a model of classic rhetoric. And by that I mean rhetorical skill. He, he does it all here. He had the ability. But he held that strength back because he knew they would make it into an idol. He knew what they would do to it. But then when the next teacher comes along, as much as he had held them off from that, when the next teacher came along, it triggered it. And so he's writing them and he's saying, wait a minute, let's go back. The very content of the gospel, it's con- you're contradicting it. The, the very nature of your conversion is being contradicted and the way I taught you the gospel, it's all being contradicted. Now here's the question. How could the Corinthians be so blind? I mean, it's obvious to us looking at it, right? How in the world could they be arguing, I follow Paul. I fo-. Don't they know how petty and childish that sounds? I mean, just in reading these words, I mean, what did that humiliate and change? Why, why did they miss this? I was talking with a friend of mine, a friend of a number of years, Mark Tisa Nation. We were talking yesterday. Um, we met at Shanks and had a much longer conversation than either of us intended. 
on our way to something else. But we were talking about uh, the Nazis. And when Nazism was taking over Germany, the church was in a real quandary. And the church kind of split into two groups. Those that supported Hitler they, um, and those who didn't. Those who didn't called the confessing church. But Mark and I were talking about how people we know of who deeply loved God picked the Nazis. My own heritage. I'm from the deep south. My people are all from Louisiana. I'm the son of a Baptist pe- preacher who's the son of a Baptist preacher. And not just any old Baptist. Southern Baptist. And you know how Southern Baptist got started? Some Baptists in the South wanted to send a missionary overseas who owned slaves. And the Baptists in the North said, that's not right. And the Baptists in the South said, yes, it is. And the Southern Baptist Convention started. And you know what? Some of those people were my great-grandparents. And I know them. I know they loved God. And they were wrong. And they were blind. Why? How, how does this happen? The Hitlers, slavery, so many Christians supported slavery. The PCA denomination, Presbyterian Church of America, is a devout denomination. And their heritage is deeply entwined with slavery, just like mine is. Hitler, slavery, Corinthian wisdom, the list goes on and on. Rwanda, the church was complicit with the genocide. How does this happen? How do Christians who do love God, how can they be so blinded to something that is so obvious and so contrary to Christianity itself? How does that happen? In a word, idolatry. Idolatry. Let Let me show you what I mean. Look on page one of your worship guide. Look down at the very bottom of the page. It's the Ten Commandments. And what's the very first commandment? It's this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of bondage. You shall have no other gods but me. In 1529, Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King Jr., Martin Luther, who started the Protestant Reformation, he published something called the Larger Catechism. And in the Larger Catechism, he said, you never break commandments 2 through 10 without breaking commandment 1. In other words, idolatry is the essence of all sin. That's what Romans, if you're familiar with the Bible, Romans chapter 1, that's what it's getting at. That's what it tells us, that the sin underneath all sin is idolatry. And that you can't adequately understand any particular sin apart from understanding the idolatry that is beneath that sin. So what's going on here in 1 Corinthians? Paul says, look, you got a problem, church. You're fighting, you're fighting, you're fighting. And then he starts talking about the cross. And he starts talking about their view of wisdom in relation to the cross. Why is he doing this? He's doing this because he's diving down to the idolatry that is producing the fighting in their church. It is producing the sin. The idolatry that's fueling their sin. Now, let me just stop right here and kind of dive down on that for just a minute. Idolatry does not require a physical idol. This was the passage 
that Zeke read to us. There is a way of taking idolatry into your heart. This is what the passage he read. It talked about those who have taken idols into their heart. Idolatry doesn't require some little statue that you bow down to. In fact, in our culture, it almost never does. Now, I think it's helpful to think of idolatry from two angles. First angle, an idol is anything that you look to to give you what only God can give you. That's idolatry, turning something else into a savior. Some way in which you save yourself without having to go to God. Now, another angle that I think it helps to understand idolatry in our culture where we don't have little statues is that an idol is anything in your life that is so central to your life that you cannot imagine a meaningful life if you lose it. Something that in your heart of hearts you you say to it, if I have that, then my life has value. If I lose that, I don't know how I would live. Now, an idol can be anything. It can be career. It can be making money or achievement or claim. It, it can be your social standing or your competence, your skills, your ability. It can be physical beauty, either yours or your spouse's or your partner's. It can be your moral record in the community. All of these can be idols. Look, if you lose one of these things and it's a good thing, you're sad. But, but if you lose one of these things and it has become ultimate for you, your child, your career, your reputation, if you lose something that has become ultimate, you just want to throw yourself off a bridge. You've lost all meaning, all reason to live. And that's how you know it's become an idol. It's when you can't live without it. When Janelle and I were dating and I was in love with Janelle, one day I was praying and God spoke back. And he told me to break up with Janelle. And I immediately knew that I could not break up with her because I knew I could not imagine life without Janelle. I'd already fallen in love. And in that moment, I knew that my relationship with Janelle and Janelle, this had become an idol. Everything and anything that is good can become a God in your life. Any object, any relationship, any pursuit or material thing can take the role of deity in your life. Take beauty, for example. It's a good thing. But lift it to the place where beauty matters more than anything else. Give it ultimate value and it's your idol. Take frugalness and simplicity. That's a good thing. But you lift it to this place where it becomes ultimate And it's an idol or human reason. It's this good thing. But make it into a thing where you put your ultimate hope and you've got an idol. You know, I I heard a preacher talking about idolatry recently and he made an astounding point. He said, we look at the ancient world and we see them offering children as sacrifices to idols, right? You go to um, the temple of Artemis and you offer a child 
so that you can be better at your business and you can get more success. And we think that there are no child sacrifices in America today. But you go to Washington, D.C., or you go to New York, and you cannot succeed in a whole range of careers without sacrificing your children and your family. The career demands it. The temple of Artemis requires it. We have child sacrifice today in America. Anything that you lift to this place where you get ultimate hope and ultimate meaning and ultimate value... And and you know what? It's funny. It's funny how idols blind us, right? Slavery is such a clear issue to me. What were they thinking? How could they justify that? Again, Mark and I were talking, Mark, a few weeks ago, Mark, Tisa Nation, he said to me, it's easy to repent of the sins of your grandparents. (laughs) It's easy for us here in the valley, right, to look up at Nova and to see its idols. It's easy for liberals to see the idols of conservatives. It's easy for conservatives to see the idolatry in liberalism. Businessmen, you know, who make profit an idol. Artists who make self-expression an idol. It's easy to spot idolatry in other people. But here's one of the greatest powers of idolatry. It blinds you. Remember my joke I've told you a number of times? Two young salmon swimming up the stream. Old salmon swims by. How's the water, guys? Two swimming keep going. One looks at the other. One salmon looks at the other and says, water? What's that? Idolatry, one of its greatest powers is that it blinds you. So many Christians in the South who were genuine Christians were really blinded to slavery. And Christians in Germany to Nazism. And one day they woke up and they had performed a genocide. The Christians in Corinth were blinded to the idolatry of wisdom. What are the idols in your life? It's such a hard question. Ask me about the idols in somebody else's life, right? What are the idols in our community? I I told you about one time where God revealed to me idolatry in my heart. But but Calvin said the heart is an idol factory. (laughs) It just churns them out. In the spring of 2002, we, Janelle and I, and Spencer, our daughter, we, we lived in Kentucky. I had just flown back from England where I um, had interviewed at the University of Gloucestershire, Oxford University, and the University of Durham for a PhD. Um, I was accepted to all three schools. I fly back and I have to decide what school I'm going to go and do my PhD at. And it takes several weeks, and we have lots of friends who know what we're going through, and they're asking us, so where are you going to go to school? And um, I would have to go through this litany. We're trying to decide. And one night, right before bed, Janelle looks at me, and she says, Aubrey, you're getting a lot of stroke out of Oxford. And in that moment, I knew I had made an idol out of that. And that night, God told me, to lay that idol down and to write them a letter and to not go. And then it got worse. I used to fly all around preaching. That was, I was a professional preacher dude. And I would go places in America and they would love to introduce me as the guy doing his PhD at Oxford because somehow it gave them stroke. And I had a choice. Do I go out there and just deny it? Or do I deny it but explain that I got accepted there? 
And it was like every time it happened, God was calling me to die to it again. So I would just have to say, no, I didn't go to Oxford. I went to this other. And just... The heart is an idol factory. And you can make an idol out of anything. Academic success, family. Take your children. When you essentially look at your children and in your heart of hearts you're saying, if my children are happy, if my children love me, if my children are Christians, if they are successful, then I'm worth something. Then life matters and means something. Then you're looking at your children not as a good thing. You've elevated them to an ultimate thing and that's idolatry. The evangelical world is full of the idolatry of family right now. And we baptize it in the name of Christian values. Romantic love. If you've ever been in love, if you've ever fallen in love with someone, it is so powerful. It is so hard to keep these things straight in your heart. But when you look to that person, and it's only that person's love that makes you feel loved. And in your heart of hearts, you say, if this person doesn't love me, I am nobody. I'm lost and undone. You will crush that person under the weight of your idolatry. You will ruin your relationship. Now back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. Paul begs the Corinthians to end their divisions and to stop their fighting. And then he dives down and he says the real problem going on here is that you've made an idol out of wisdom. And the Corinthians didn't see it because idols blind us. And look what Paul says in verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. He said if I had played into your game I would have emptied the cross of its power. Idolatry has the power to destroy a church. Not only to turn it into a group of people that are fighting, but to turn it into a powerless thing. To empty, to gut out the power of Christianity. And look how destructive this is. This idol of wisdom, wisdom is a good thing. It's good. But turning it into an idol is destroying this church. They're fighting. They got cliques. They're not getting along. I mean, it's destroying the church. It's destroying their witness in the community. It's robbing them. It's destroying the gospel. That's how powerful idols are. They will destroy you. Those slave owners in the South, they paid every ounce of wickedness with their souls. It broke them and bent them and made them into bad people. You cannot mistreat a human being in that way and your soul not be bent by it. You cannot bout whatever you worship, you will become. We were made to reflect. We were made in the image of God. We bear His image. We reflect His image. And whatever you worship, you reflect. All you have to do is look in teenage culture, right? Whatever it is that has of ultimate value, they look like it, they act like it, they dress like it. And adults just get more sophisticated, but the same thing occurs. Idols will twist us and destroy us. They will destroy a church. And they will turn the gospel into something it's not. The power of an idol is so strong. Look down at chapter 2, verse 5. 
Paul said, the reason I'm doing all of this is that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The death of Jesus is God's act for our salvation. And here's the problem. If you make an idol out of your family, your family will not die for your sins. They can't. Your family can't save you. That's the psalm we read. Idols are mute, they're dumb, they're deaf, there is no life in them. You make an idol out of beauty, beauty will not die for your sins. It will not save you. But God, in Jesus Christ, on the cross, that's power for salvation. Let's pray. If you'll bow your heads and close your eyes. Take just a moment to talk to God. Maybe ask Him to reveal to you any idols that are lurking in your heart. Or maybe you already know of an idol. And you need to ask Him to help you to repent and turn away.